Did you know that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where lower the friction comes in by putting a protective lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to LowerTheFriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's LowerTheFriction.com. All right, hello one and all. Welcome to the weekly Secrets of Saturn live stream. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. This week, we have Wayne McCroy, Crow777, Rose777, if you will. And at the beginning here, we have Matt Presti joining us for a few minutes to talk about a Freedom Rally he's having this weekend. Crow will be on with us in a few minutes. I think he is muted out, but all right. I'm on. You're on? All right. Hello, everyone. So let's get this party started. Matt, why don't you say who you are and what's going on? If anyone's a Crow listener, you will definitely know who Matt Presti is. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm Matt Presti, president of the University of Science and Philosophy, and um, just a patriot who's trying to throw a rally at the Dent County Courthouse in Dent County, Missouri, which is a uh, very old town with a lot of history. And uh, we're throwing a patriot rally in support of uh, patriot values, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights and uh, also backing our men in blue, as well as our men in red, which I am a firefighter, and so that's that's a natural thing to do. And also our EMS and our veterans. And uh, we're throwing a rally in support of uh, values of patriotism, Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. So how are you dealing with the mask situation, I must ask? Well, I'll just say that Dent County has been very um, neutral, and that's a wonderful thing because it, it gives people the choice as to whether or not they want to wear masks or not. So there's not been any mandates made by our city council or our county commissioners, uh, but it, it truly, like South Dakota and the governor there, leaves the choice to mask up or not to the individual. Good. which I support that. And so I'm, I'm working on that with uh, the Dent County Republicans to throw this rally, their support. They're not throwing it themselves, but uh, they are lending their support to the effort. And so we, uh, we're pro-constitution in this county, uh, and we aim to see people be able to make their own choices, not be mandated outside of the legislature, which is more or less the definition of tyranny is when you're mandated to do things outside of a legislative body, then it's no longer uh, representation by the people. It's, it's misrepresentation by so-called authorities that assume that authority over the general populace in what are called decrees and mandates traditionally. Well, since we have you here, Matt, why don't you take a minute to talk about Walter Russell, what you do, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've done two shows with you on Crow 777 Radio, and of course, we're all behind everything Walter Russell. Yeah, well, we're, we're just trying to promote the works of Walter Russell. Um, I have no, I've made it my uh, administration's mandate that, well, mandate, there's, there's that word, but 
our guidance for the administration is to preserve Walter Russell's works as they were written, not with edits, not with uh, politically correct uh, reformations or, or corrections, but just to present his work as they presented it to the world, much like you would preserve the works of any great artist. And, and that's my um, mission for the University of Science and Philosophy is to simply preserve their work. We've had past administrations that have tried to alter and change their work to fit politically correct uh, mindsets of the time, which um, I found damaging, and so I reversed those decisions. And uh, I, I truly think people are quite intelligent enough to decide for themselves based on the Russell's original writings, which is, I, I'm all for originality, being a musician. I would be abhorred by somebody that came and tried to change my music as I had written it, even if it's imperfect. I think keeping a perfect record of history, and we can argue with that word, but I'll just say this, that, that what we have on file and on record is the truest truth. And so by preserving that uh, representation of what the original founders had put forward is the best way to carry their work forward to the people and let them make up their minds for themselves. And if anybody was uh, was listening and weren't familiar at all with Walter Russell, do you want to give a quick rundown on who he was? Yeah, he was a, a genius of the 20th century. He mastered all the five fine arts with only a fourth grade education. Uh, he was conferred 11 degrees in his lifetime, having only had a fourth grade education. One of them was a science degree. Um, and he was just an incredible mind that his body of work is his testimony to his own philosophy that it works, that what you create with your mind must be built into a body for it to exist. And that through that building of that body, that is the proof that what you think is true. And I think that's, that's a great axiom for all of us. The, the code of hermeticism is, is that the mind is causal and that the universal body of matter is the effect of a greater mind of which we are all a part. And so I support that, and I just support that uh, he is a, a great artist, along with his wife, Leo Russell, who supported him in his endeavors. And uh, they created the universal University of Science and Philosophy, which was an extension of the Twilight Club started by Herbert Spencer, who said that if man does not learn to inculcate character and build his character, then we shall all become cogs in the wheels of industry, which was the in original industrial revolution, that we might lose our minds, so to speak, in the pursuit of material things. And, and it's important that uh, some institution, as Alexis Carroll advised Walter Russell, you should create a university based on teaching man of his soul and his mind, which no universities do. And that's our our main focus is to keep that alive. Crow, anything you want to add in about Walter Russell before we let Matt go? Yeah, ac actually, I have quite a bit I want to add in. Um, but did were, were you guys on the air when you were explaining what Amazon did to these guys? Or was no. that all off air? No, as a matter of fact, I wanted to, if Matt was wanting to talk about it, yeah. let's let's get as many people behind him as possible. Yeah, let me let me address this quickly. I've I've got some friends. Um, I may have a hookup, Matt. We'll see after I get off the air tonight. I'll talk with them. Um, I may have an in um, to Amazon through um, a longtime supporter. But uh, so so everyone listening knows what's going on here is Matt 
actually a couple people from the museum have been on Crow Triple Seven Radio. On the tail of that, book sales shot up more than they usually would. Uh, apparently, Amazon has shut their ability to sell, citing that it's the holidays or some nonsense, and maybe predicated on, on a couple erroneous tracking numbers that got fixed. Point is, is they're holding cash back, and we're talking thousands of dollars. This hurts the museum. So I'll say this. Um, if anyone's interested, there is one book uh, from this place minimally that everyone needs, the Universal One, and this is a quality book. This book can be handed down generation to generation. I mean, it is a quality-bound book. Um, if you want to support Matt and the Walter Russell, which we've tried to do, and Amazon's trying to hose us, apparently, um, because I suspect it's actually based on the jump in book sales, um, go to the Walter Russell website. Don't go to Amazon right now. But I would further say, this is clearly more onslaught to the light. What, what, what Walter Russell represents is a man who went into illumination, serves the what I call the right-hand path and the light. Anyone who caught MTV in the last week will see the glorification of the golden goat holding a popcorn thing in its mouth. That's the sign of Capricorn. That's Saturn. That's Satanism, which is being indoctrinated into the young people. They all wore black and black and red. The whole thing is an indoctrination away from light, almost like we're entering an age where they're going to try to demote the sun and promote Saturn. Um, and they're doing this generationally. They're going to get the young minds to think, oh, goat's cool because it means greatest of all time. That's what all the young minds were just taught, that that's what goat, the acronym, means. So what I'm saying here is those of us who give a damn need to support the light. What Mr. Russell and what matter about is the light. All right, Matt, is, uh, why don't you go ahead and give out the information for the rally one more time before we let you go? Yeah, um, I'd just say to add to Crow's comment, the best thing you can do if you want to get Walter Russell books, Leo Russell books, is visit philosophy.org forward slash store. Again, philosophy.org or philosophy.org forward slash store, and you'll be able to order the books directly from the website, which help the university directly. Uh, that saves us a 15% upcharge by using uh, Amazon. But um, yeah, the rally that's coming up in Dent County is a rally that is based on, it's called the Patriot Rally. And we titled that name first and foremost because we're trying to wake up the hills, basically, is what it comes down to. And I think a lot of people, I've gotten a lot of great messages uh, from elders and, and youngers alike that they have long sought to see this happen. And while this system is not perfect, I'll admit that. I, I did not vote for Trump because I'm not a Trump supporter. But I, di I did vote for him, not because I'm a Trump supporter, but because Trump supported my views, which I had already inculcated for 16 years. He was the closest to my views of any, not politician, but person that I had ever heard express his desires. So with that in mind, being... <laughs> not a Trump supporter, but someone who basically Trump's ideas supported mine. And I can go into all the things he's done for the reason which we align at this moment in time. I'm walking with him, but not in all things. I'm, I'm definitely opposed to mandatory vaccinations and things like that. 
But to the degree that he's been able to align with my views is why that support is mutual in a sense. So I would just say this, that there's many people in this county who have those same views, have the same views of liberty and freedom and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which is not perfect. You know, no system we have that's been presented before us is perfect, but it has the ability to improve itself when it's taken in in such a way. So that's my hope that we can achieve through what's laid down as an established republic could be uh, multiplied in an, in, a, in an efficient manner to eventually create change that benefits all of us. This is an experiment in democracy in a republic, and that's important to, to connote that, that differentiation. So this rally is a rally of individuals, not a mob. It's a rally of people who love individual rights and freedom and are coming together in a common purpose to defend those rights and the rights of uh, others, though they may not realize those rights. So I thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate you. And I thank you for all the work you've done to inform and, and make the public more aware of, of, of secrets. We have a long way to go before we reach natural rights and the realization of natural rights and the things in the declarations and, these, and the agreements we enter into. But that can come when the basic common citizen realizes that there's more to the story than just what we're presented by the mainstream media. And I'm glad to be a part of that in a small county like this, where a lot of people have really not had a voice in so many years and are coming together to this rally. So we're going to make it the best we can. And God bless you all for your uh, support in our efforts. And that's all I have to say. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Hope everything goes well tomorrow and let us know how the whole crazy situation uh, goes on, goes over in the next couple of days. Will do. Thank you very much. All right, man. Have a great one. You too. All right, everybody. Let's get on to this document. I put the link for it in the chat room. Let me pull this back up. If anybody needs it still, let me know. I will put it again. All right. So the obelisk in Freemasonry. I've actually been through this document before. One time on a... Uh, Earlier on live stream, back when I first started doing this, I think it, I think it was Crow, myself, and Baldini, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, so everybody knows that these these kind of silly, homemade-looking, most of the time, silver gray metallic monoliths are showing up all over the place. As far as we've been able to tell, they're art pieces of some sort. Uh, Wayne, how many did you count? Rose sent me a list with seven of them, but you said you found even more than that, right? Yeah, I mean, as of yesterday, there were five that were circulating in the news, and then two more showed up today in the news cycle. So, uh, And when I had gone digging into a little bit more information about uh, the monolith and looking at some of the information relating to the 2001 movie and the book uh, by the same name, uh, it turns out that uh, one of these monoliths had appeared somewhere in Paris in, back in June. And nobody seemed to know where it had come from. So you could you could trace this back to what probably seven or eight different ones right now as of right now. But it's changing all the time because these things keep popping up in the news cycle, popping up in different places. So whether it's copycat artists or, or whatever going on, who could say for sure? But I think there's clearly some messaging going on along with it. Right. So here's the list Rose gave me of where they've been officially reported in the United Kingdom. 
on the Isle of Wight, in the Netherlands, in Kiekenberg Natural Preserve, in Utah, at Bear Moab, in Romania, in Nimt County, in California, in Atascadero, North Carolina, in Fayetteville, another one in California, Los Padres National Forest, and in Texas, near El Paso. So that's so far. I, I, man, I don't know what these could possibly be. From what I understand, they have rivets, and they don't even, other than being the uh, similar shape, it's not even really all that much of a connection to 2001 Space Odyssey, which had very specific dimensions. And honestly, even in the the book, the things changed around. Uh, the, the original concept that Arthur C. Clarke had taken it from, it wasn't even a rectangle. It was a, um, oh a tetrahedron or something like that. I forget exactly. I only ever saw one picture of it ages ago. But uh, as far as 2001 is concerned, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were working on the project at the same time. Clarke was writing the book in cahoots with Kubrick, and there's one major, major difference, and it's significant between the book and the movie, and that is in the book they go to the planet Saturn. That's where the discovery goes, to Saturn. The monolith is around the moon Titan, if I recall correctly. And in the movie, they claimed they couldn't get the special effects to work right, so they switched it to Jupiter. I think that's a big deal. (laughs) What what do you guys think? Definitely a big deal. And I I think it's also... Yeah. Well, not only that, I think there might be some connection to uh, the Great Conjunction coming up here on the 21st. Uh, you know, the the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, maybe there's some kind of messaging related to that with this as well. Crow, you sound like you wanted to throw something in there? Well, I'm trying to look up uh, because I don't recall. The problem is, is I base everything I do on the seven planets. It looked to me like most of these fake um I don't know what people are calling them, the the silver three-sided things. It's not a monolith. That's not the right word, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. They're made out of aluminum. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there are two planets that rule the age of Aquarius, Saturn and Uranus. There's a lot of debate over whether Uranus applies yet or whether it's some future thing. All the older systems that I respect don't include that because apparently it wasn't known about yet. But if I'm not mistaken, people have tried to pair aluminum uh, with your uh, Uranus, and I'm trying to look up if that's true, but I'm seeing all the wikis and all the stupid places telling me it's zinc, and that doesn't sound right. Does anyone no. know? Does anyone know if Uranus is actually aluminum in in some breakdown? Uh, I've heard Ben Balderson uh, say that a couple of times. Uh, I haven't really explored that avenue of thought much, though, but uh, it could possibly be, um, you know, and Uranus basically is the next octave up. I, I think it would correlate back to Mercury uh, when you look at the, you know, the, the scale of how, how it goes uh, when you go up the next octave because that's, that's basically what it would be compared to the system of, uh, going with the seven original luminaries there that we look at. Um, Uranus would represent the eighth one, which would be the next octave up. So it would kind of encode back to Mercury, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you might know huh. more about that than I do, Crow. I just Why? looked it up here, and it says that Uranus is no has no metallic affiliation, 
The sun is gold, the moon is silver, Mercury is platinum, Mars is iron, Venus is copper, Jupiter is tin, Saturn is lead, and Pluto is iron. All, all those are acceptable, except I don't know about the Pluto thing. Iron should be Mars. Um, and yeah, I that's that what I was certain. thinking. Um, so what you're seeing is the obfuscation. And by the way, if you're still looking up Pluto as a planet, that tells you something, too, because the mainstream has demoted that to a dwarf, but I am reasonably sure. I found two places that said zinc and two that says it has no metal, which is complete poppycock because what Wayne said is provably true. Um, it's up an octave. So the question is simply in my mind, uh, have we raised a vibration enough for this to be included in the things we think about it? I think to some degree it is, but I still stick with the seven basics. My point being is you can feel the palpable shift um, into air ideas, into Saturn ideas specifically, and into demoting anything Christian um, as it switches over and start to normalize what would be associated with Saturn, um, which will, of course, be the goat. Um, for those who don't know, Capri would be the word for goat, goat, corn in the old school is seed. So when you're looking at Capricorn, you're looking at the goat seed. So when MTV starts trotting out everyone dressed in black with a goat holding popcorn in its mouth, it doesn't take a genius to understand what they're doing. And then they take the acronym of GOAT, G-O-A-T, and make it greatest of all time, indoctrinating those minds. By the way, I've seen three recent movies. Um, actually, it was an HBO thing, something else. Uh, that are making the claim that right now everything changes, including religion, spiritual concerns, everything. So you can see what's going on. And these these obelisks, it's a stage set. I mean, don't you agree, Wayne? Is this just a, a stage to put up? Absolutely it is. But it's going in the major mainstream media for a reason. And, and that's, right. I think, what we need to explore here. And I've kind of... Uh, uh, thought this whole thing all along is basically some sort of a, a ceremonial type of uh, ritual or something like that uh, when it comes down to it, the reason that these are popping up. And I think it has everything to do with signaling the starting and the coming of a new age here coming up on the, the 21st. Um, that's just my view of what I think might be going on with this. It's It's definitely some kind of a message to people uh, who would know a little something about these things, people at the top most levels of the power structure, the, the ones associated uh, through these secret societies and these things um, that would understand what exactly is going on with this. Uh, I think there might be a little bit of crossover to the uh, 2001 type uh, I, I agree. information well, as well, because that's it, they were talking about that in the articles early on, how it looks like this. And, you know, they keep it, it reiterating that fact. Oh, it looks like the thing from Kubrick's movie, you know, so. Yeah, Michael, Michael Hoffman, which is one of the only people I know who covered the monolith that from 2001 that showed up in 2001 in Seattle. Um, he wrote me when we were getting ready to have him on the show. He wrote me a simple email that said, get ready for the blackjack. I knew what he meant instantly. He's talking about the 21 and the way it's being used in 2001, um, because when you remove all the ciphers, it's 21. Uh, in the same way, September 2000, all of it can cipher out as 21s. But Wayne, when you first sent this to me, I made the comment that it was spotted from the air. Initially, the first fake we'll just call it an obelisk, um, was spotted from the air. If I'm not mistaken, that was in Red Rock, wasn't it? I don't remember now. 
it was where was it Moab, Utah, or something Utah. like that, yeah. somewhere like that. So, yeah. so that's biblical too. People can go into the Bible, or if they're familiar, that's a pretty popular one. Um, you can see see the idea of what Moab represents in Scripture, um, but it's Old Testament, isn't it? Um, and everything Saturnian is going to be Old Testament. Everything. You're not going to find New Testament stuff, as far as I can tell, encoded to the Saturnian ideas. All right, so this document, uh, well, it's a book, I believe, uh, is called The Obelisk and Freemasonry According to the Discoveries of Belzoni and Commander Goringe. Also, Egyptian symbols compared with those discovered in American mounds. Well, that's interesting, right on the f surface, right? And this is copyright 1880, so as Crow says, this is before the modern edit, but it's written by a Freemason speaking to Freemasons, because if you come down a little bit, it says, to the Masonic fraternity and all of, all over the globe, this epitome is dedicated by the author. So there you go. All well, right. he, he opens by saying, our Secretary of State. I wonder who owns him. <laughs> yeah, actually, let's read this little introduction, because it, it kind of gives away what they're what they're really uh, about, right? So the preface starts, as our Secretary of State, Mr. Everts, considered Commander Goringe's discoveries on the obelisk of sufficient importance to open a correspondence between the State Department and our Consul General, Mr. Farman, we feel encouraged that the manuscripts, manuscripts drawing, etc., presented to us by Mr. Belzoni at Brussels in 1850 will corroborate Commander Goringe's opinions and prove that an insulation, excuse me, an institution similar to Freemasonry existed in Egypt before pyramids and obelisks. Because the Masonic tools, perpendicular, square, compass, plummet, etc., were required to construct Egypt's architectural wonders and must therefore have ant- and I gotta make this larger. I am struggling reading these words. <laughs> Join your age. Get, getting old, man. Getting old. They were required to construct Egypt's architectural wonders and must therefore have antedated those wonders. Moreover, these implements must have been used in building Babel, Nineveh, and Babel's tower in the Valley of the Euphrates. The article on Belzani's manuscripts and drawings, published by the New York Herald, February 16th, 1880, which is probably just shortly before this document was done, attracted much attention and elicited letters from the far west. So did Consul Farman's erudite and graphic paper, now in the State Department, among the National Archives. It was published by the New York World, April 21st, 1880. In this epitome, we shall quote Belzoni's manuscripts on Egyptian Freemasonry, illustrated by colored drawings as found on the walls of the rock-excavated Masonic temple constructed by Pharaoh Seti I and his son Ramses II. Anyone who will take the trouble to read this epitome and consider its illustrations will realize that secret societies like Freemasonry existed in remote antiquity and were the prerogative of kings, hierophants, and magnates. Isn't it funny how they always want to pat themselves on the back? We must not omit to express our heartfelt thanks to those whose works, lectures, and conversations enabled us to write this opinion. Well, we're going to skip all that. Freemasonry, as connected with Belzoni's Grand Masonic Temple, found in 1818, and with Commander Goringe's discovery of Masonic emblems and symbols on the obelisk now, June 16, 1880, on its way to New York, will be our chief aim. We shall also mention the five obelisks yet standing in Egypt and relate the adventures of the eleven now in Rome, three elsewhere in Italy, two in Constantinople, two in France, six in England, one on its way to America, 
and of the one in Germany, which, though the smallest of the 30, is the oldest, being Koval with the 5th Manethonian dynasty, which, according to Brugsch, reigned 3700 to 3300 BC. As in Egypt, pharaohs, princes, hierophants, and magnates were masons, engineers, and architects. Freemasons of our day may look with pride toward the cradle of civilization, of which the coming obelisk will be a worthy representative in the New World. John A. Weiss, M.D. Written on June 16, 1880. I noticed here that these dates, when you look at June 16, 1880, when you break it down, the 8 and the 8 is a 16, and June is a 6, so it's just 1s and 6s. And then when you go down to 3,700 to 3,300, that breaks down to a 1 and a 6, too. So that reminds me of the Marty McFly 9-11 encode. Right. Um, I was picking up on it, too, and I was not aware that there were 11 at this time, anyhow, obelisks in Rome. But I can tell you that this is disingenuous. Um, Freemasonry has always claimed um, back to uh, whatever you want to say, their forerunner, where they inherited information as Egypt. And anyone who's seen the old 50s Masonic Bibles will see that the entirety of the triune deity is laid out with Horus and Isis. Um, and, and Osiris instead. That's always been the case. But they also do another weird thing up at the top of this. Um, they make a direct reference to the Tower of Babel, which there is absolutely no evidence of, and which every Christian mystic will tell you that that is an allegory um, for something else altogether. It's, it's weird how they're doing this. It's almost like it's a sleight of hand, uh, and I haven't quite picked up if what's actually going on is they're just reading to people who can see see what's written in between the lines. Maybe Wayne uh, can see that. Yeah, I, I picked up on that Tower of Babel reference there, too, and that's absolutely what they do. Even though they put things in the written form here, uh, when they put it pen to paper, they're still writing only the exoteric version of stuff. Right. And uh, it's it depends upon the, the level of the mason that's picking this up, like whereabouts he uh, stands in their hierarchy, like how, how much of the initiations he's been through, if he picks up the hidden meanings in there. So yeah, they're definitely they're speaking just here to the exoteric on this, not the esoteric. Well, now, if you understand, if you understand the esoteric involved, I mean, you could pick up on some of the uh, the messaging here. And it's always like just this beginning part. This is all the padding on the back. You know, we're great. Our our fraternity goes way back to prehistory, and we did all this. You know what I mean? That's the that's kind of the thing. It's it's the hubris involved with it. Uh, they really firmly believed that it was their order or some version of their order way back then that built all these monuments and encoded all these secrets and stuff in there. Uh, so it's basically this beginning section here. Um, it's just a whole lot of patting ourselves on the back kind of thing is what it is, what it boils down to. But it does have some important numbers and stuff encoded in here, too. And you'll notice the date of this. Uh, this uh, book was written in 1880. Now, if you fast forward one year, 1881, is that not the year that a lot of the different um, theosophists and, and different uh, other groups, uh, some fellow Masons and things like that, we're pointing to the start of the age of Aquarius. It is. It That's, is. In fact, it's in the light of Egypt as well, Wayne. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a, a tell there uh, that they put this book out and they're talking about uh, the importance of the obelisk. Okay. And that that's what uh, a lot of this is. It's an ancient symbol, goes way back, and there's a lot of different things associated with it. 
and uh, apparently it's one of the important pillars of Freemasonry. And I said the word pillars on purpose because that's exactly what they view them as. So uh, it, it's not surprising that he's saying about 11 of them in Rome, uh, 11 of them. That's that's another tell right there. Right. Um, when when you look at the 11, you could also look as, at that as the Twin Towers as well. Uh, the one and the one there because it's just two pillars next to each other, isn't it? So, I mean... You know, there's a lot of different things in here that you could you could pick out if you really want to scrutinize it with a fine uh, fine tooth comb um, and look at the different numbers and things in here. But uh, for just our purposes tonight, I think uh, we should move on to the introduction part where it actually talks about the obelisk. And we could maybe ascertain um, a little bit about what maybe some of these monoliths that have been popping up all over are really about, like what the intention is behind them. We, we should point out there's one obvious big difference. Every obelisk has four sides. Every monolith that I've seen, these little metal things that look like art, um, they have three. But when we should, before we jump in on the thing, let's just make a point. We've been inching towards this for so long. Maybe this is a good point. Does everyone out there understand, if you're interested in the Bible, that a service reading of that narrative is only giving you the exoteric, the outer meaning? There is an entire esoteric meaning, which is the inner meaning, which people like the Christian mystics and others um, started to bring to light right around the time Wayne nailed that date, 1881, where they claimed the age change begun, um, which could be, I don't know. There's supposed to be a transition year that's anywhere from 150 to 300 years before you're firmly into an age or something like that. None of this I can prove. I'm just reiterating what I've, what I've told you. But if you read things like A.S. Raleigh and other things that Jason and I have covered about color, about cymatics, that is the esoteric meaning that you can derive from the Bible that begins to turn tune into the sky clock. And I think it's important for people to start thinking about whether they want the surface narrative or they want to go deep. And just to add a little something else to what you just said, uh, you're saying um, these obelisks and these pillars uh, they're they're four-sided, and the ones that have been popping up, these monoliths, are three-sided. Yep. Well, that tells me that this is kind of a, a step down uh, from the four-sided ones. So these are, uh, I know I'm going to say, I'm trying to think of what the right word for this would be. Um, it's kind of a lesser replicant of what the these big monuments are supposed to be. Okay, so it, it's like a, a, a lesser dimensional uh, form of it because you're you're losing one of the sides so you're going from a four side to a three side and this gets back into something that i talk about in my new book that i just released uh, it goes back to foundations and the foundational nature of numbers and uh, i know we did a show on that not long ago crow uh, talking about that but but this is actually breaking down uh, the four-sided which uh, i see something with four sides as a firm foundation for something and they're, they're breaking the firm foundation down and putting it to a lesser foundation, a still stable foundation, because something three-sided still has a, a stable foundation. But it's not as firm as the four-sided one. So it's that uh, denotes to me the idea that they're taking away something to add something else in its place as a new foundation uh, to make the firm foundation. That's just kind of an idea that I get from that whole concept. It's interesting, Wayne. I thought about it and I wrestled back and forth. For for one thing, you're probably not going to find the angles of sorrow, which you can absolutely find on a regular obelisk. But at the same time, 
you're spot on. And for everyone who remembers the number work we did, <clears throat> every three numbers, you come to a number that values out to 10 in the old, wait for it, esoteric counting method. Most of the numbers games we play here are occult reduction. In other words, we reduce things down to one typical digit. Um, if you do the opposite of that in the esoteric method, like four is a good example. To take one of the values of four, you'll add one, two, three, and four, get it? So from one up to the number, you add all those together. And anytime it reduces back to 10 or adds to 10, then the, va then the value of the number at hand has some form of the power of 10, and 10 is a powerful number. And this should be considered in what Wayne just said, because dropping from four to three, you're losing the occult power of 10. Right, absolutely, and that represents perfection in uh, the old Pythagorean system. Uh, so that's what 10 represents. So if you're taking away the perfection of the foundation, and when you actually reduce it, when you add the numbers together, the single digit numbers, one plus two plus three foot plus four, that equals 10, like you alluded to, but you take away the four, that drops it down to six. And six is the number of a man. So, um, and six is also a number relating to Saturn. So there, there's a lot of different things that you could look at there. It depends what exactly the intention is behind it in order to be able to uh, kind of muss out any meaning out meaning out of it uh that's the hard thing to do it's sometimes determining okay what's the intention and i think that's an, an important first process that we need to establish is if you know the intention then you could start to pull the meaning out of these different ideas when you see uh these um encodings put in there so that that's the kind of thing with this so we're going from what is usually denoted as a four-sided object to a three-sided object now uh, so, you know, with that being less said, stable. we're losing something, right? It's 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 still stable, but it's less stable. Yeah, it's min minimally stable. You need three three legs on a stool before it'll be a stool. But everybody knows that the most stable shape you can make is a square. Right, and sometimes it's hard to express these ideas. Um, but uh, if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, like, you know... I, I know I do my best and Crow does his best to try to explain these things in the simplest terms, but that's that's the best way we could put it. If you're you're dropping from a four sided object to a three sided object that denotes the foundation and it denotes the three sides denotes the, the least uh, the least stable foundation and the four represents the most stable foundation. So generally, if you build something, uh, the four sides represent the stable and good foundation to build it on um a three-sided thing is a minimally stable foundation so usually when you have something that's that's utilizing three sides you try to put a fourth side on it in order to make it more stable so that it'll actually stand for uh you know a period of time um and it's just these basic ideas and if you apply that esoteric thought that type of an idea to different systems or or you know different um things going on in the world these are the philosophies and stuff that they use. It's a philosophical idea. It's kind of an archetypal idea. It's not so much, uh, you know, like a, this physical idea like we're alluding to here. Uh, that's just a good way to represent it, like in an allegorical sense for people so you could understand it better. But certainly they, they use these uh, number games in order to uh, pull off the things they want to pull off in this world. So I think that these uh, 
you know, monoliths that have been popping up, they're definitely sending a message to somebody in the know about this stuff. So they're, they're looking at these things and uh, what it is, who could say for sure? But I mean, I have some certain ideas, but I think that's kind of why we're here tonight. We're kind of brainstorming uh, what could this represent? Like, what, what are they trying to get across with this? Why is this in the news cycle so much? Because, you know, if something pops up in the news cycle, um, there's something to pay attention to there. It's important. It's there for a reason. And we may not get the exact reason because we just get the exoteric view of it. That's how they do everything. They put these news stories out that tell you, oh, well, this th these weird uh, mystery mystery objects. <laughs> you see, they'll always throw the word mystery in there. That alludes back to the ancient mystery schools. Are they so novel anybody who, Yeah. Like, I mean, so anybody uh, who has any kind of foundation in uh, these secret societies or any of those esoteric studies or – you know, the occult or anything like that will pick up on that right away. So that's a message to them. And then it's just man managing to figure out what's the intent and then to kind of pull the meaning out of the symbol itself. So that's kind of why we're having this conversation here tonight, because I know I've personally had a lot of people say, hey, have you noticed all these things, these monoliths popping up and stuff? What's the deal with that? So I think it's important we take a look because they're definitely using it to uh, – convey some sort of message here are all of them three-sided or or just some of them because i was wondering if the first one had four sides maybe that was the ritualistic poke in the eye and the rest of them were copycats afterwards for people that you know found it amusing i thought it had three sides the first one had four sides let's look it up I, real i'm quick. asking i don't know i thought they all had three sides what i've seen has three but the, the most stunning thing of all is to call it an obelisk because it's synthetic. Um, it's a far cry from taking a piece of stone, the bones of the earth, the living rock, however you would put it. Um, you almost got to wonder, Wayne, if it's a demotion of the idea of masonry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> screw, screw you skilled rock crafters. You know, we got these welders here and they're going to knock us out some aluminum. We got a TIG welder. <laughs> Yeah, you never know, man. It's yeah. you know maybe they're they're getting the big demotion from uh, the Who the knows? Jesuit order or something there. You know, makes you wonder. But <laughs> See, that, cheap that's another off. thing. That's another thing that goes on behind the scenes is there's there's this power struggle at the topmost levels of these secret societies it's it's the same thing like it's kind of like what you would see in you know the public politics going on same kind of thing all these power battles and stuff like that they're all on the same team at the end of the day don't get me wrong but you know this one wants control that one wants control they have different opposing ideas on how to get, garner that and you know they keep pulling back and forth so who knows so the first one was three-sided and <clears throat> the utah one is claimed to be by a community a group of artists known as the most famous artist who are selling them if you want one for forty-five thousand dollars. Forty-five thousand, oh. boy no just sign me up for three of them um the other thing <laughs> i would point out is the boy the we're original... in the wrong business guys i got some yeah. plywood here i could get some metal sheeting <laughs> we could build one of these things knock it out in like 10 minutes <laughs> Crow, I'm you know, putting, the original, I'm putting your telescope the original tower ones are, the, the original ones are granite, and they have quartz and crystal. Um, they're, they're electrically charged in a way, as far as I know or have come to accept as probable. The whole idea between a real stone obelisk is it has to do with the sun, but it has to do more with as above, so below. So what it's actually involved in in some way, shape, or form 
is energy exchange because as it is here, so it is up there. As it is up there, so it is down here. It's almost like a reflection. It's almost like the mirror idea. Um, or cymatics down here could be thought of the vibrations of God. So when you think of what a real obelisk is about, now think about what we're seeing here. Yeah, it's, like it's a lesser get, reflection of it. Popsicle stick or something and calling it valuable. Yeah, well. All right, shall we get to the document? Let's let's start yeah. with the introduction. Yeah, on we might want to do that. Well, you know, <laughs> we've, 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 we're only half done with the show. The obelisk. This word is derived from Greek, spit or brooch, whence also Latin obeliscus, the French obelisque, German obelisk, etc. Under the earliest pharaohs, the Egyptian or Coptic word for obelisk was teken, T-E-K-H-E-N, but after the 22nd dynasty, it was called men, M-E-N, which meant stability. Another ancient Egyptian term for obelisk was jerry and shai, and shai, and shar? Didn't Which we go means... to school with a Jerry Anshar? <laughs> I think so. Which no, means written column, an appellation quite significant and sacred in the Coptic language. Now, I'm curious why they put the uh, the the men thing in there, which means stability. I almost wonder if the Freemasons are talking about themselves, that they are real men. Well, it's also the, the phallic idea, um, which anything that has to be, wait for it, erected, has the phallic male idea with it. But I'll point out another thing. They're making a big deal out of the Coptic. What's the first of the year on the Coptic calendar, Wayne? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. You Pretty tell me. sure it's 9-11. Oh, there you go. Okay. Gotcha. And also notice the 22nd Dynasty, 22 is the master builder number. Absolutely. Good pick up there. And uh, notice they're talking about stability, like we had just spent uh, a couple minutes talking about the, the four sides stability that's what the word men there meant um that's what they're saying so i mean they're invoking these different ideas and uh english is really um a constructed language just for these ideas like, like honestly from the more research i do into it the more i discover english has been just a hodgepodge language thrown together to kind of uh confuse and hide different esoteric type ideas right into the wording so it's it's really a, a thrown together language, but this is where like you know you could look back. This is ancient Egypt we're talking about. The languages probably couldn't be more different. I mean, if you're going from Coptic to English, um, but this is what they meant, and this is the words that they actually used. So and that teken uh, for obelisk, uh, that could be a root word for technology, and you know you see that. Uh, highlighted in the 2001 film, the obelisk, the Tekken technology. Um, you, you could it goes like this all day long. I mean, you could see how these things, these ideas, are all kind of inherent into the language, even. Okay, an obelisk is a four-sided pillar tapering from the base and terminating not on a flat surface, but in a pyramidion, which is the diminutive for pyramid. It is usually of one piece styled monolith or one stone now right there obviously this is different than uh than these metal fajigers originally these monoliths were used as funeral monuments and were either of sandstone limestone or granite later they were of rose-colored granite composed of quartz feldspar and hornblende this granite was named cyanite from syene a city in upper egypt where those beautiful monoliths were quarried 
They were placed on pedestals before gateways of the principal temples in Egypt, one on each side of the door. Thus, an obelisk consists of a pedestal, shaft, and pyramidion, which terminates in an apex. And let's also get something really clear that uh, Bill Cooper used to say all the time. It is the penis of Osiris. <laughs> but Isis finally yep. found that thing laying around somewhere. And, and, then, she, and then she made him a golden <laughs> shaft so that she could become impregnant, uh, impregnated and have Horus. That, that's how the old myth goes. And, uh, you know, uh, Osiris's original penis was eaten by a fish. Um, that that's an interesting crossover mm. there too, isn't it? I wonder if it was a Pisces fish. I wonder if it was the Southern fish. Mm. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how all these things all tie together. But there it is. The obelisk consists of a pedestal, a shaft, and a pyramidion, which terminates in an apex. Um, and uh, you'll notice the different stones that it speaks of up here: quartz. Uh, Feldspar, and I'm not sure what Hornblende is, uh, but I would bet that it's probably something that uh, would also equate to something mentioned um, in the Bible as far as the uh, the New Jerusalem, the walls of the New Jerusalem, because I'm pretty sure Quartz and Feldspar are, are listed as part of that, too. I mean, all these things kind of tie together in a lot of different ways. Um, so let me look through this again here. Um, sandstone, limestone, or granite they were made of. Uh, so you can see this is a far cry from what these uh, cheapy versions that are popping up are. But they're the ones that are popping up now, they, they are metal, like cheap aluminum or something like that. A very reflective metal, uh, you know, once again, symbolizing the as above, so below thing. So this is kind of a lesser reflection of what these things once were. So you could kind of see how they're they're taking Here's a little something away from it with it. Here's an interesting thing. Hornblende just describes an igneous-type rock. It's not a mineral on its own, but it's described as a complex inosilicate. So, again, we're talking about uh, the possibility for current or vibration or whatever, but what's interesting is the crystal habit of this broad-class mineral is hexagonal, um, and it's mm. also a crystal sim system which is called monoclinic. Um, so there you go. Black, dark green, or brown is the color of the varieties of Hornblende. And uh, the in the Vatican, I've, if I recall correctly, that obelisk is made out of red granite. And now thinking back, it makes sense to me because red is associated with the idea of Mars and war and blood. And the Vatican is all about imperialism. Right. And I, I would... Uh, say that the horn blend mentioned here would probably be more of the green type, the dark green color. Uh, I base that, uh, that that's speculation on my part, but I, I base that upon the idea of, uh, I believe green is the color associated with the moon. And that was kind of an important, uh, uh, you know, symbol for the ancient Egyptians. It represented um, Isis as well as, uh, you know, several other different ideas encoded there. So that would be my guess. It's, it's, that's a total guess, though. I can't say that for sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of different meaning you could garner from just looking at the different ideas that they're talking about here with these different types of stones. And, uh, you know, you, you could see, um, talking about, where, where, where was I here? I just lost it. Um, sorry, guys, lost my train of thought, lost my place here in the document. Uh uh, anyway, save me from myself, bro. 
You you were saying something about Snowpiercer. It must be December. <laughs> it must be entering the sign of Capricorn. No. Um, go, go ahead, Jason. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that people should bear in mind. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I suggest the three of us do a full-blown Crow 777 show on this doc. There is so much here. The idea is the same idea that we're always faced with when we look at older cultures. Did these people just were the idiots and they liked art and these things did nothing? Or did they spend all this effort and master craftsmanship and particular types of stone because they were functional items? I would suggest to you that these were functional all day long. Uh, and I think people should keep it in mind. Why the hell would the Vatican or anyone else in the era of sailing ships move a thing that's, I don't know, half a hundred tons or something? A lot. A lot. Especially for horse and buggy and uh, wooden ships right. and that kind of thing. So, yeah, big deal. Big deal to move these damn things. The artistic rules for the construction of an Egyptian obelisk are the length of one of the four baselines measures one-tenth of the length of the shaft. So the pyramidion is one-tenth of the shaft and forms a graceful top for the whole structure all in keeping with the tapering shaft and pedestal, which slightly projects beyond the base of the shaft. The Egyptians had observed that the play of the sunbeams on a polished surface made it appear concave, although it was perfectly level and smooth, and gave to the face a convexity exactly proportionate to that optical illusion. The convexity of the obelisk of Luxor in Paris, which appears absolutely level, is 16 lines in the center. This simple detail clearly shows a minute observation and a very advanced art. Thus, their slightly convex sides increase their apparent height. The pyramidion, or apex, was made more pointed in some obelisks than in others. Most Egyptian obelisks bear hieroglyphic inscriptions. The four faces or sides are engraved with care, despite the hardness of the cyanite, which must have presented immense difficulties, especially when we consider that they had no tools and facilities as we have. Hieroglyphs are usually engraved on four sides from the top downward. There are three perpendicular rows on each side, the middle one of which is read first, then the one on the right, and next the one on the left. Thus, the translators of obelistic hieroglyphs pass from side to side and then adjust the whole. On the obelisk of Luxor in Paris, the medial inscription of three of the sides is dedicated to Ramses II, whereas the two lateral of these three sides and the fourth entire side are about Ramses III, who caused the work to be completed. The work of the engraver also differs. The inscriptions of the middle column are deeply cut, whereas those of the lateral columns have less depth by one half. This arrangement, thus contrived, is of a harmonious symmetry. We give these details to enable readers to understand the modus operandi of Egyptologists who translate the inscriptions on obelisks. Moreover, when they glance at an obelisk, they will know how the Egyptians read ages ago. The gracefully proportioned pillar-styled obelisk was coeval with budding Egyptian art for we find it from the 4th and 5th Manathonian dynasties, which supposedly ran from 3700 to 3300 BC, to the Roman sway under Domitian, AD 132. Obelisks were not only used as monuments to the gods and the dead, and don't forget the penis of Osiris, but for recording the deeds and reigns of pharaohs, 
but besides these devotional purposes, they had a practical object and served as gnomons or hands whose shadow was made to indicate the hours of the day, as will appear in the course of this epitome. Ah, so they were used to to do the sky clock, huh? Yeah, go figure, right? Uh, it always foot, relates back. There's a footnote from Voltaire on that. Voltaire, speaking of ancient horology, or the ology of the hours, or Horus, observes, but our meridians are more just than those of antiquity, had the author of Charles the Twelfth and Zaire thought before he penned this sentence, he would have realized that he was telling the world nothing new or striking. For mankind had about 2,000 years to progress in geography, meridians, and astronomy, according mm. to Voltaire. All right, I just lost my place. In the, in first, the first century second. of our Pliny, uh, Pliny? Pliny. Pliny. Pliny wrote, Pliny was a person. Right. Monarchs entered into a kind of rivalry in forming elongated blocks of this stone, known as obelisks, and concentrated them to the divinity of the sun. The blocks had this form given to them in resemblance to the rays of that luminary, which are so-called in the Egyptian language. The Roman archaeologist little dreamed that, 19 centuries after he penned those, these lines, modern savants would decipher from hieroglyphs Sati, S-A-T-I, which is the name of an Egyptian goddess and means sunbeam. Thus we realize that the obelisk was connected with sun worship. The Greek stelae and Roman columns were probably derived therefrom. Solomon's two pillars, Yaquin and Boaz, were but an imitation of two obelisks at the entrance of Egyptian temples. So are the two towers on Gothic cathedrals and two steeples on churches. Two towers. That that sounds familiar. Perhaps hmm. Ovid's Philemon and Bossus, or Bacchus, not sure how they're pronounced that, were borrowed from Solomon's temple, Bossus being only a linguistic namesake of Boaz. No wonder obelisks cherished during 4,000 years now adorn Greenwood, Auburn, All Souls, Perret Lachey, where their ethereal pyramidions are legion. New Yorkers showed their predilection for obelisks in the Worth Monument, near the crossing of Fifth Avenue and Broadway. As a Christian emblem, the obelisk typifies resurrection. Freemasons use it in symbolic degrees. Indeed, they do. <laughs> and there's obelisks all over the place. I yes, mean, there they are. got that big, big one in Washington, D.C. Um, there's one right down here in the Wyoming Valley, Jason, down in Wyoming, the Wyoming Monument. Yep, you remember that one? You've been there? Yeah. yeah, isn't there one in uh, Pittston as well? Uh, yeah, I think there there is, or at least there used to be. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, these things are all over. We had a lot of uh, Freemason lodges and stuff here tons of in them. the Wyoming. Valley, tons of them. So. Yeah. yeah. It, it also ties what we're all dealing with in 2020. Go to the three city states, and you will find that they are all connected by, wait for it, obelisks. Ta da! Um, and as I said recently in one of our shows, the obelisk that sits in St. Peter's Basilica Square out there in the sundial, um, that came from Heliopolis, or the city of the sun, as it sits there in a sundial, surrounded by statues that represent the acceptable year of the Lord, each saint or figure representing a station of the sun in that year. But the real story is they moved that thing a couple hundred yards, a couple football fields, 
and it was well documented. Pictures were painted and drawn, and the guy who did it was wanted to be famous, so it was very well documented. What they went through hell in a handbasket just to move that obelisk 200 yards. So now let's talk about pulling that thing out of Heliopolis and bringing it to Vatican City, if you can see where I'm going here. They went yeah, through hell in a handbasket for 200 yards. It's not an easy task to move no. one of these things, um, and that's what you got to keep in mind. And then you got to think, what's the reason that they moved it as well? Um, you, you know, you, you have to wonder. I think there's more to it than Geo just the Mancy. pomp. Yeah, yeah there, more than just the pomp and circumstance of moving this thing. But yeah, I, I think it relates all day long back to geomancy or, uh, you know, uh, something along those lines. Uh, Where are these obelisks in the uh, city-states placed? Are they on any particular parallel or anything like that to make them have some sort of significance in that way? You can go, if you go on Google Earth, you can look up Cleopatra's Needle is one, um, the one I just mentioned from Heliopolis. You got the fake one there in Washington, D.C., but there's real ones too. Um, And as a matter of fact, that first... uh, What's that first Masonic place on the East Coast on the 33rd parallel? Um, there's uh, one of the short squat obelisks is, is there. They're all over the place. But the three city states, if people go look at D.C., Vatican City, and the city of London, where all the banking happens, um, and look at the, you know, the whereabouts of the obelisks, you'll see how they're all joining. Their energies are all joined. And you guys did an episode on the three city states with uh, City States, which was episode 118. And also, by the way, the um, longitude latitude of the Washington Monument is 38.8895 north, 77.0353 west. Wow. 77. There you go. Five, 555 <laughs> feet and inches. All fives on the vertical, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's by design, too. You see how they use these number encodings all day long with all this stuff. I mean, it goes on all the time. The Masons are are famous for this. Uh, They do this with all these different types of things. Uh, So I'm not sure what kind of measurements the other two um, obelisks have. But uh, what they do all have in common is they also sit in front of a reflecting pool. And that's an important thing, too. because As above, uh, so below. Yeah. Right. And and then also um, that encapsulates the idea of both the masculine and the feminine aspects, because the reflecting pool represents the feminine aspect, whereas the the obelisk itself represents the masculine concept. So, uh, you know, they they always like tie these together. So you have both of the polarities there and the uh, elements, too. Right. The, the air and water, all all four elements, really, when it comes down to it, you have your, right. yep. the, the earth earth water fire and air all combined together uh and usually they they have some kind of uh you know uh, a torch or some kind of a flame or something nearby these things as well um and it, it, it's all the same symbology over and over again uh just little variations on it that's all but most of them have all these things in common and there's a reason for that and i would venture to say that uh, probably the proportions are are the same too, like their proportional distance from the reflecting pool and all of that are probably important to some degree too. Um, so I, I would say that's probably a lot of different things that could be looked at with this. If people wanted to get into the minutia of it all and, and see just what kind of numbers and stuff they use there, because they plan this stuff out like very meticulously. Uh, but, uh, 
for the purposes today, we could probably just, you know, not go into all of that kind of detail with things. Uh, it would be just time consuming to look it up and, you know, speculative at best from us. Well, I know the- that the St. Peter's Square is 135 feet, which resolves to nine. But you know what, Wayne? I don't remember there being a reflecting pool at the one in the Vatican. I remember, if I recall correctly, going over some kind of moat to get there. But gosh, I don't well, know. Oh, there's, there's the moat. Water. There's the water idea. Okay, so it's the moat. That, that one's broken, too, I think, Rose. I think when they were getting ready to move it, they claimed they found it buried. In other words, they're claiming that somehow that made it there. Nobody quite knows how. And they dug it up, but I believe is that the biggest one? I can't remember. I was just reading it. The biggest one I think is, is Washington do... Monument. No, 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 not the fake one. A real oh. stone. Um, oh. The Washington Monument is a construction. I'm talking about a carved stone. But one of their claims is is they found this thing toppled over, and I think the bottom was broke. I don't remember if if that's the biggest one. Um, but you see, these are everything that's going on here. This is where people get lost. Nature works in one way. All right. So all these little secrets and things, even the esoteric meaning in in mystic Christian traditions, it's all doing the same thing. The reflecting pool. How many people would be surprised to hear that when you look at original deck of tarot cards, that the ideas hidden there are the same ideas hidden in the cathedrals in glass and stone to show human beings to a higher path is the same idea that the Christian mystics have tried to keep alive while everyone's been lost on the exoteric, oh, listen to this clever story, um, nothing more to see here, guys. This was a dude, he looked like this. He had sandals, that's all you need to know. Say the magic words and you're good. Um, all these things are relating to one thing. Um, and that's why I think part of why we should do this whole story is it is a big deal, apparently, to own these obelisks. Why the hell didn't they make, wouldn't it have been easier to make an obelisk in a city of stone carvers than to go get the one from Lord knows there and then claim you found it buried and don't even know how it got there in the first place? I'm just saying. Um, these things are important. Oh, this is kind of like that stone under the king's throne in England, right? Same right. kind of stone, idea. Stone, stone, yeah. Here, yeah. Here's the, uh, the Vatican page on the whole shebang. i just put it in the Skype chat for everybody. Do they have the moving of it in there? Yeah. Yeah. That That's a story. It was Gaius Caligula who had the obelisk brought to Rome in 37 AD. It was the largest non-inscribed obelisk to leave Egypt at 25.5 meters high and weighing an estimated 326 tons. The obelisk was originally erected in gardens Caligula had inherited from his mother, and then on the central spina of a circus that was started by Caligula and completed during Nero's reign. Much of this circus is under the Basilica and Square. The original spot for the obelisk is near the present-day sacristy, south of the Basilica. So they're going to attribute it to prehistory where they can just say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't. So go ahead, tell me how Caligula, which, by the way, you're supposed to believe that guy's crazy. He's got some kind of communicable disease, plus he's a little insane. He makes lawnmowers, buries people up to their heads, makes lawnmowers and cuts off their heads. That's what you're supposed to. Oh, by the way, he married his horse. That's what you're supposed to believe about Caligula. So you tell me if, yeah, you tell me if if a dude at that time in history, the way it's described, and and the dude's insane and marrying his horse, if he's going to move 300 and something tons with Roman ships that you paddle for the most part, uh, how did he do it? 
because in in a more <laughs> recent era, the Vatican barely got away with dragging it to football fields. I'm just saying. I know that we talk a lot about using sound and and different uh, culted uh, methods to carry heavy objects, but in the spirit of questioning everything, how do we know that they're not just lying and that it didn't come from Egypt? How do we know? Well, I think um, one one way is because of the stone. Um, you can probably show that the things that got cut around Italy look different. Um, but I, I accept that those are all from Egypt. Um, I've, I've never walked up to one. But there's another funny thing that you'll notice if you pay attention. Besides the fact that you're going into these things, oh, this, like King, King Tut's chamber. It looks like somebody freaking cracked that thing open, threw all their garage sale crap in there, sealed it up, told the dude to crack it. He's, oh, we found this amazing thing in here. Um, that whole King Tut thing is a put-up. But besides that, the painting, all that beautiful color, that's supposed to be thousands of years old. I'm calling poppycock. But what's more is if you pay attention to hieroglyphs cut into stone, um, the closer you get to our time, it looks like the dudes had palsy. It's, it's like that that um what's the name of that oh the the little cathedral that gets all the attention there from from dan brown's book priory of Sion. Um, no 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 Rosalind, the cathedral, no, no, Rosalind, the cathedral. Rosalind, Rosalind. Rosalind chapel yeah so if you go to Rosalind chapel it looks like dudes with palsy carved that stone it is nowhere near the level of stone carving we have seen but when you go see these obelisks some of them Looks like they had a laser-guided CNC machine with diamond bits or something better because it is astounding, the crisp. I mean, you can almost cut your finger on the edges. Um, and then you see these other things, and it looks like some dude that was handicapped with a doll hammer, you know, tried to chisel. <laughs> just nothing fits. Um, I'm here to tell you that if there is antiquity in those things, they were moving those things, my best guess is by cymatics, which is if Caligula actually did it, who knows. Um, that would have been how they moved it around, probably. Um, but those those carvings, go look at some of the carvings. It's like, I don't even think a CNC machine could, could do the carving that we're being told was done with copper. Um, I'm just saying, we, we, we've fallen far, we've lost a lot. Indeed, we have. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at these pictures of King Tut's tomb. It's funny. It's just shit stacked on top of each other. It's like a freaking yard sale gone wrong. And then all of a sudden, the, the, everything's crap in there when you see the picture. And by the way, the mystery's there. The dude opened the air, he breathed the air, and that dude dropped dead six days later. You know, this whole nonsense story that there was some bug living in there for God knows how long. Super um, bug. But the point is, it's a bad garage sale, except for the golden sarcophagus <laughs> they trot around the world. Oh man! So check this out yeah. before we get back to the document. This is the this is more on the uh, the Vatican obelisk. Because of the solid pedestal on which the obelisk was placed, it remained standing for fifteen hundred years until it was moved to where it stands today in Saint Peter's Square. It took thirteen months between fifteen eighty five and fifteen eighty six to move and re erect the obelisk. The idea to move it was that of Pope Sixtus V, as part of his desire to recover and re erect all the obelisks lying then in the ruins of Rome. Legend Sistine Chapel boy. That's Sistine Chapel boy, just so everyone knows. Legend had it that the original metal globe that was placed at the top held the ashes of Julius Caesar. During the resitting of the obelisk, the globe was opened and found to be empty. The globe can now be seen in the Museo dei Conservatori. The cross at the top of the obelisk today, get this, 
is said to have certain relics of Jesus Christ. Okay. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you. Well, what happened to Caesar's ashes, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, why, why would there be a globe on an Egyptian obelisk? It's just all poppycock. A big disco ball on top of the yeah, exactly. Egyptian obelisk with Julius Caesar's ashes in it. That's great. John Travolta's <laughs> All right, getting back to our reading here. Ages ago, Solon, Thales, Pythagoras, Plato, Herodotus, Germanicus, etc., conversed with the Egyptian hierophants and priests concerning Egypt's history and architectural wonders. But their account remained meager and vague till lately Champollion, Young, Spones, a whole bunch of people here, interrogated hieroglyphic hieratic and demotic characters, signs, emblems, and symbols, which directly and indirectly answered more satisfactorily than the hierophants of old, together with Moses, Herodotus, Manetho, Pliny, Strabo, and Tacitus. Yea, daily and yearly those silent signs and symbols on pyramids, obelisks, temples, and tombs reveal the arcana and history of primitive heroes, families, tribes, nations, dynasties, and empires. Even Masonic attitudes, <clears throat> postures, initiations, and regalia are being divined and ascertained, since figures on the walls of unearthed palaces, temples, and tombs tell the story of their long-departed inmates, as may be seen in the vast subterranean temple discovered by Belzoni. In this epitome, we shall endeavor to show what Egypt has been, is, and will be to those who sincerely search for mankind's primitive history. Ancient statesmen, sages, historians, and artists visited Egypt to study her social status and admire her architectural wonders. Medieval alchemists and savants looked to Egypt as the source of their theories. Egyptologists have been trying for the last 50 years to unravel Egypt's hieroglyphs, and now the earliest society for mutual protection and charity, Freemasonry, points to Egyptian obelisks and splendid rock-excavated temples as repositories of its secrets. Ooh, Thus boy, endeth dudes. the introduction. <laughs> boy, these dudes need to uh, attend one of the uh, meetings of the... Uh, Overly dramatic? No, the 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 thesaurus club. <laughs> Where's Baldini when I need him? <laughs> they they use so many descriptions for this pyramids, obelisks, temples, and tombs. <laughs> Come on, Academy man. Award. That was a mouthful. Us. Yeah, us. <laughs> All right, moving down, chapter one. Before we approach Freemasonry in this, you know, they keep saying epitome. E p i t o m e. Is that how they pronounce that? Because that's not usually what I use that this word is... for. This is 1880s language. Yeah. Um, so you can yeah, even they, see. They might be saying yeah, epitome. That's what I was wondering. Is epitome. it? Because this is an old, old you know, uh, what, do you, what would you call it? A, um, an acronym at this point. Yeah. We shall I, give. I would have read that as epitome. That's, I mean, that's, that's the only way I not to pronounce that's that the word. modern pronunciation, but uh, I, I think it means something slightly different. It might have been pronounced epitome at that point. Um, that, that just seems more grammatically correct to me for some reason. I don't know why. Tome. It's a big book, right? Right. Yeah. And that, well, this is a, like a, a smaller big tome. So a small big book. <laughs> yeah, probably just an archaic <laughs> use or something like that. Um, probably. All right. We shall give all the concerns the obelisk destined to adorn the American metropolis. We have scanned journals and periodicals and gleaned them, 
gleaned from them what appeared most appropriate and interesting to readers. First and foremost comes the Masterly Report Illustrations and Measurements by Grandmaster S.A. Zola and the accompanying conversations published in the New York Herald. Well, goody gun drops. Mr. Zola is Sovereign Grand Commander of the Supreme Council of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite, past Grandmaster of the National Grand Lodge of Egypt and Chief of the Symbolic Masonry of Egypt. They love to state their titles, don't they? Oh, they sure do. This report is an answer to hundreds of letters Mr. Zola received from Masons in all parts of the globe. All right, they have a pretty picture of it. All right, let's get down here. Having that's, learned... That's actually a handy, pretty picture. We'll have to take that apart later. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's got all the mathematics in it, which definitely wouldn't translate to over the air radio. Having learned that some stones bearing Masonic symbols had been brought to light by Lieutenant Commander Gringe, I presented myself to him and accepted the offer courteously made to assist at the work, inspect the stones discovered, and express my opinion as to their Masonic signification. Brother Gringe, being occupied with the more difficult part of the task entrusted to him, requested me to make further researches. The obelisk known as Cleopatra's Needle was erected on a pedestal, almost a cube, from the surface of which it was raised nine and a half inches and was supported by four square axes, five centimeters thick. Now, why are they mixing nine inches and, and centimeters here? Because the Masons in this part of the world... There's a whole show that we can do on um, inches. The way the way that we still measure in America has vestiges of the natural world in it. And since Freemasonry is all about the sun and the sky clock and that aspect of nature that controls us all and the above and the below and what happens to us after we're dead, they're not going to go metric because metric is devoid of any natural relationship. It's like uh, it's like a surgical room. It's been denuded or denatured to a, to a level that's, I don't know, we'll have to cover it sometime. But we still have furlongs and hands and inches and yards. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get into millimeters, it's cold, clean steel, brother. It's this, 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 and it's all multiplied by 10. It's just there's no nature left in it by then. It's all man-made. Two of these axes ran through crabs while the other two had been sawn off and removed in days gone by. The height of the perpendicular of the obelisk from its apex to its base is 68 feet 11 inches, and the perpendicular of the sides is 64 feet. In volume, it is 2,678 cubic feet, and in weight, about 186 tons. Well, what does that mean? Two of these axes ran through crabs. I think that's coded language there, Crow. So it's talking about relating- the keystone. So it's, uh, you're going where I'm going, right? This is the arch. Yep. This this is the royal arch. So the crabs would be the keystone in the arch. So they're saying the purple. They're, they're basically saying the apex, right? That's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. On the side, one of the sides is five feet four inches wide at the top and eight foot three inches at the base. It's parallel five. Nine eleven. Yeah. Nine, five foot. Nine eleven. Yep. It's parallel, 5 feet 3 inches and 8 feet 3 inches at the base. Another side is 5 feet wide at the top and 7 feet 8 inches at the base. It's parallel, 4 feet 10 inches and 7 feet 8 inches at the base. Now, that's a little weird, isn't it? The pedestal is 6 foot 10 inches high. One of the sides measures 9 feet 2 inches at the top and base. It's parallel, 8 feet 9 inches at the top and 
Eight fits. Uh, you know what? I, do we really want to go through all this? <laughs> There's a lot of numbers. No, you need to get by page 12 down to um, the obelisk and Freemasonry that picks up on 13. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. There's the foundations consist of three. Okay, that that's interesting. But we better burn through. Yeah. Pick we're... up at the Gringe, stone number one. All right. The Gringe stone number one was found last January, which I guess would be 1879, inside the foundation of the obelisk and on a line running from west to east. In form, it is a rectangular parallelogram having two sides partially worked and partially finished and polished. The lower surface finished and polished, the upper surface and remaining two sides in a rough state. On the two partially finished sides, and by the line forming the angle, are two serpents, about two-thirds coiled, heads downward, meeting toward and reaching to the lower line. Toward the middle of the same sides are two other serpents, with the heads turned toward the same angle. Uh, okay, more dimensions. Above the coils yeah. of the serpents, and at the point where the two upper lines should meet, is cut in a right angle with the following measures. Okay, great. Signification. I consider this a piece of architecture, offering a glance the labors of the three symbolic degrees. The apprentices being represented by the rough parts, the craftsmen's by the worked portions, and the masters by the finished and ornamented parts of the stone. It should be remarked that in the stone itself, the coiled serpents have not the head and the horizontal ones are completely lacking, but their traces are so clear that I could easily restore them and was thus enabled carefully to measure them. The extremity, moreover, of one of the heads is still visible. These ornaments have a relief of about four lines. All right, now we're moving down to stone number two. Jason, really quickly, I know you were talking about, um, you were reading off the numbers and it went from five foot four to five foot three. And whenever I see the four and the three together with the five, it reminds me of the squaring the circle idea, which is also found in the pyramids of Giza. Well, that's, that would be significant to Freemasonry, definitely. I, I found I found the crabs. It's absolutely what we're talking about. It's way the hell down, but it talks about one of the crabs I have mentioned on the outside, its left claw, the only remaining claw of either crab, was found the following Greek inscription. Um, it represents the word year being formed by lambda in the Greek. Uh, goes on. I, I won't cut to the chase, but it gets into the inscriptions, and just so everyone knows what we're talking about here, the crab is cancer, and that is the keystone of the royal arch. Um, among other things. The... Go ahead, Wayne. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something significant uh, in Freemasonry when you're talking about the, the keystone and, you know, the royal arch. I mean, all these ideas are, are encapsulated in this one monument that they're talking about. So, uh, I mean, of course, they're, they're, you know, taking credit for this, like their, their brotherhood. Uh, who knows how far back it really goes, but uh, I mean, all these things are definitely inherent in a lot of these ancient architectures and ancient forms. And the Freemasons, you know, was it really their organization and stuff, you know, uh, moving forward through the ages here with this information, or did they just hijack this from somewhere else in the ancient world? Um, my money's on the the latter there, but yeah, anyway. They're, they're claiming that on Cleopatra's needle, the inscription is to Augustus Caesar believe it or not. Um, so I'm with you all day long. Is this just another Ennead? Is this just some 
bullshit history hooking themselves to the places they feel are heroic you gotta that's, wonder that's my take on it because uh, they they love ancient egypt okay that's something so. the masons are fascinated with they have entire um uh, degree systems and stuff um devoted to this like the the, the right of Mizrium, the right of memphis uh they have all these different uh, degrees uh going back to these Egyptian ideas, it's there's a whole uh, Egyptian school of masonry like that goes along with this. It's a, a whole separate thing that goes along, uh, like in the upper degrees. Once you hit the thirty third uh, honorary degree, you could branch off into these different paths in in masonry. And these are different ones that they they like to go down. A lot of them really refer back to all these Egyptian ideas, and and this goes back to the mystery schools and stuff too, and like other. Uh, secret societies today refer back to Egypt as uh, the perfection of the mysteries. Uh, they see this system as the perfection of the ancient uh, mysteries, all combined together into this one uh, culture here. Uh, so that's why they use it as a model for everything else. So the Freemasons, I think it's slightly disingenuous for them to say, well, this was the this was obviously the Masons back then. They predate the Egyptians, and they, you know, the Egyptians took these ideas from the Masons. Um, I think it's the other way around, honestly. But um, you know, I don't know. I, I could only speculate as to that. I can't say for certain, but uh, it seems really odd that they they like to take credit for all this stuff when they really can't prove for certain that it's their particular fraternity that has done so since they didn't really appear in public view until uh like you know what was it the late 1600s early 1700s as an actual organization as the uh um the uh not the operative masons the other one the uh what do they call it um i can't i'm losing my words here <laughs> it's getting speculative the, masonry? The, they're basically theoretic masons so speculative. i don't know what the yeah. word is but speculative the other thing masons. you'll notice about called. this wayne is both of these inscriptions that are to caesars are on the right and left claw of the crab so they're making that keystone royal arch they're they're basically making it a brag like caesar was a 33rd degree above the royal arch initiated human being or whatever well i guess he'd have yeah. to be wouldn't he well, since they put his ashes in that globe, uh, you know, that sparkly disco globe up on top, I mean, wouldn't that uh, represent that uh, he's he's achieved apotheosis and he's become one of the thousand points of light? Isn't that what that represents? A thousand points of light. A thousand points of you light. Honor. <laughs> so yeah, man. we're running short on time here. Uh, I'm flipping through this. Did you see anything in particular, Wayne, that we should consider of import to break down here um let me scroll down a little further chapter here. 10 is the eleusinian mysteries crow likes those oh they're, they're always interesting to go through um honestly when i was looking at this document initially i found it and i had in mind um that uh all these uh, monoliths and stuff have been popping up in the news cycle. So I was thinking maybe by looking at this, we could kind of get an implication as to what, what the intent is behind the appearance of these obelisks. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of why I, I figured going through this might be good. But obviously this is a really long book and there's a whole lot of information in here. So it's going to take more than just this uh, little chat that we're having now as we're just kind of 
glancing through it for the first time here to to really garner out all the meanings and stuff that are really there. But uh, well, the just, one thing uh, we could say is that the, these art pieces are not. Uh, what would you say, geometrically accurate obelisks in any way, shape, or form? No, they're not. But they're they're meant to be a uh, just a, a quickly put together uh, mirroring of these things. I mean, uh, you could see how it's it's kind of cheapened and denoting a different age. We're in this uh, industrial age where things are are largely manufactured um, on the fly. You know what I mean? Like in in large factories and assembly line, all that kind of idea. That's what these are. They're, they're kind of piecemealed together quickly, um, and they, they represent that idea uh, because this is a different age than the age that these original obelisks were built in. And I think that they're actually putting these around as a signaling of the new age that they're saying is to come, the, the uh, you know, uh, full-scale arrival of the age of Aquarius. I think that's what they're symbolizing there. And I think all day long that this points directly to December 21st and uh, the great the uh, great conjunction uh, that's going to happen on the winter solstice here and the switching over, as uh, Crow has alluded to. Uh, I see this as they're, they're switching over, um, you know, to the, uh, the... In 2021 here, there's that... Uh, the, the blackjack, like uh, Michael Hoffman uh, said to you, Crow, 2021. Oh. There it is, 21. The blackjack. Right. Uh, they're, they're they're switching over, and you know this uh, great conjunction's happening on the 21st, and the solstice is on the 21st. There's the 21 there. Uh, it all kind of lines up in that way. You know, you have the two 21s. That's a three three. There's a 33. Um, you can you can see how. They're kind of symbolizing this in a way. They they have different things in mind than I think what's you know really going to come. Uh, it depends who gets their way here. If the uh, the masses wake up in large enough numbers and you know this uh, this great awakening takes place uh, with all of the public, or if it's just the uh, the people at the top of the power structure right now trying to stifle that, uh, and if they get away with that, I mean. That'll tell what it is to come, but they're trying to leverage off these ideas. They they see the natural cycle, and they're trying to leverage off of these ideas. And I think that these uh, monoliths they're erecting all over the place very quickly are kind of uh, uh, it, it's a message to those in the know that uh, that they plan on trying to take this new age that's coming, this age of Aquarius, and they're trying to stifle down the consciousness of people. Uh, that's just right. the impression I get from it because they're they're using um, these very um, you know feeble attempts at replicating these old monoliths of old these obelisks. Uh, they're doing it with unnatural type things. Like they put a shiny veneer on it. They'll put like an aluminum casing on it. It's a reflection. It's it's like a silver color. It's a reflection. It's a reflection, a lesser reflection of a greater idea. But they're trying to stifle uh, the energy. Uh, of that's going on right now with uh, people uh, waking up in this whole massive uh, awakening thing that's going on. Uh, so they're, they're trying to stifle that and redirect that energy towards what they want. And that would be, uh, you know, this whole draconian holding people down and the, the idea of the age of Aquarius that they want. So um, it, it's going to come down to, at the end of the day, are, are the, the masses going to wake up in large enough numbers quick enough here to uh, tell them, hey, we're we're not gonna uh, allow you guys to uh, steamroll us the way that you've been this past year, and uh, 
you know, we're, we're not going to tolerate that. And we could have, um, you know, a much better future that way. Or are these people going to get away with what they've gotten away with for so long now by trying to keep the secrets from the people, uh, the secrets of the natural world and try to invert the natural world for their own, uh, gains here. Um, and that's basically, I think kind of what is a symbolic representation of what's going on with these. It's, um, marking the time that we're at. It's, it's, it's like a, a, an homage to the coming of the solstice here. We, we uh, can prove it in a way, Wayne. We can prove this because people, I know people listen to you and think, oh, what's Wayne on about? So think about this. These people took Lord knows how much effort to go get these obelisks. Let me read you one of the lines that's been translated from one of these random obelisks. Horus the mighty bull, beloved of truth, king of upper and lower Egypt. Every one of these refers to him as the mighty bull. Why? Because they're in the age of Taurus. So what's going to happen is supposedly Egypt's going to fall. We're going to go into the Jewish exodus idea. That will be the age of Aries. That's why the Jews are blowing the ram's horn. That will go away and we'll go into the age of the fishes where we are. So if we're correct, and we are, and I still can't prove it one way or another. i am tried six ways to Sunday. I still can't pull it off. But the language says that we're going to be in the age of Aquarius. In biblical terms, you could call literally Aquarius the age of the son of man. So I would like to know how anyone can tell me how the most mighty people, Vatican in the world, Washington, D.C., and the city of London— made so much effort to go get these inscribed monuments that are naming that they were created under the sign of the bull and then tell me that they don't give a damn about when the age of Aquarius is coming. Those two things don't jive, right? Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, uh, it, uh, definitely. They put a lot of uh, lot of time and effort and thought into these ideas, and they do pay attention to this. And that's something that's kind of been disregarded by most of the public at large. Uh, we don't really pay attention to the sky like they do. And uh, they they know when these things are, are you know, coming. And uh, they know how to utilize and, and leverage these different energies from, you know, these archetypal ideas that relate to this natural world we live in and use them against the public. And they've been doing this for a long time because they've, they've really kind of dumbed us down to this whole um, methodology here because they, they've told us for years and years that that stuff's silly. Astrology, that's silly. Uh, like like all of that stuff. Like they, they try to make it seem like it's there's nothing to it and it's just fairy tales and it's nonsense when in fact there's really, you know, energies that could be leveraged there and they're trying to keep uh, the public from realizing these things and and, you know, keeping them from knowing how nature truly operates and they they've done everything in their power to switch us into this artificial system this artificial reality that they've pretty much built around us and they've programmed us with everything that we see is basically um misdescribed at this point and it's misdescribed in an unnatural way uh, whereas if you go back to the foundations of nature and look at how nature operates it operates very differently from how they describe it to us and this applies across the board with everything even even the uh, science that they put forth 
it doesn't add up. I mean, they have beautiful mathematics to make it work, and they plug in these variables that make it work how they want you to believe that it works, and they show you that. But that's not how it operates in nature. If you go and, and look and do empirical observation and empirical experimentation, you find that it doesn't operate how they're telling you. Um, the math adds up, sure. Because they make it work because they of the variables and stuff they put in. And, you know, mathematics is just a way to describe something. It doesn't tell you actually how it operates. And that's where they get you. They have everybody convinced that science is the absolute thing because they use the mathematics to prove it. Well, the mathematics don't necessarily prove something. They describe something. And that's where we've lost the, you know, the boat here and dropped the ball as, you know, a, a thinking human being. You could use mathematics to describe anything. You could apply mathematical formulas to anything and make it look like it works and it's factual. Okay? Um, we could see that going on right now with all the nonsense going on with this uh, pandemic situation. Uh, you could make the math show whatever you want it to show and, you know, claim that it's fact. That does not make it fact and that does not make something valid. Uh, it's a description. Math is used to describe and... Uh, that's the whole difference here. It doesn't prove or disprove anything in particular because you could make it show whatever you want it to show. It's it's a valuable tool uh, for, uh, you know, invoking ideas or trying to express ideas or, or make ideas fit together. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really prove anything. So I'm done with my diatribe there. There's, there's uh, <laughs> Jason, I know we're getting close, but on page 34... There's actually two great poems, one from the supposed king of Egypt and the other one from Freemasonry. Oh, let's get down to page 34 then. The first one's very telling, and I'll be back in just two minutes. And I will pontificate upon my soapbox on these poems as soon as I get to Lord. the appropriate page. Page 34. 34 does not appear to be a poem. 30. 34. Central uh, the end line. Of 34. Oh, there it is. Okay, I see it. The obelisk erected by. I'm there not even going to try to say that. Tom Toughness. <laughs> okay. Toughness. Toughness. Ooh, I can read So, are we talking Ooh, about. <laughs> Central line. The Horus, the mighty bull, beloved of the sun. King You're of the wrong upper. Spot, man. I, what? This yeah, is page thirty-four. Come on, man. Down the bottom where it says the obelisk erected by. But I was pontificating. All right, the obelisk <laughs> erected by Thotmos the Third, King of Egypt. This old, time-honored monument was born when first mechanic lights began to dawn, when art was in its cradle. All was done by strength of men, and yet great ends were won. The shaft up pointing to the sun we read, as meant to show an early simple creed. Sun worship was the order of that day, and time was marked where shadows round it lay. Four thousand years have passed since it was young, and raised its head, and far its shadows flung. It was rose-tinted, brought from far Syene, but it has faded as though born of men. The blushing color of its youth has passed, and like its betters, it is gray at last. 
This Jason, now is Jason, this? I'm having a problem here. It's written in English and it rhymes. So how is That's... this written by the King of Egypt? Yeah, you were you were just echoing the same exact thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what it's I was amazing, thinking. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I've sent some poppycock here. This granite poem is too long to read, but it evokes a pause, time's rushing speed. Whirling its fire brands in the startled air, looks like one ring of light, events were there. That fashioned after times it witnessed all, bleared tales of olden times it will recall. By its rude beauty, hieroglyphics traced, upon its surface years leave undefaced, telling the pride of kings the name and age, and nothing further shows that opened page. Raised by a king its graceful tapering height, stood tall and fair in Egypt's sunny light. No poem ever penned could e'er display such strange adventures as have marked its way. At first it graced the city of the sun. After a time, a higher place it won, for great Augustus moved it to the sea, the pride of a commercial port to be. Men worshipped it, called it a holy one. It stood before their temple of the sun. And when grown old, it of the past proclaimed the glories for which Egypt had been famed. Such times have all passed by upon the strand. It now lies prone, bound for a foreign land. It was twin-born. Its brother shaft now stands upon the banks of Thames to kindred lands. To young America this takes its way. May soft south winds along its passage play. It yet may grace fair places and may see, for the first time, a people who are free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. There, there you go. We, we, we walk should, around with our we, masks we should, on our faces and yeah. on our cell phones. Crow, now that you're back, can you explain to us why this would rhyme in English? <clears throat> I imagine it was written in English, um, but there's there's things like the Iliad and the Odyssey where they've translated over and kept the rhyme somehow. Uh, I'm not sure because I don't speak the original language, but there's an interesting thing to consider this here. Wasn't, could, there's no way this was written in Egypt. They didn't call it Egypt. They wouldn't have called it hieroglyphics. They wouldn't have known about the the later kings. and like This has nothing to do with – so who wrote this? we got to look look back here. Well, Maybe the first it's one, it's, the it's attributed to uh, Freemasonry in the title of the second header. But So think about what I was telling you. All these inscriptions point flat out tell you this was made during the era or the age of the bull, Taurus. Um, so these people were, you know how big Isis, a deal Isis is. Um, the bull is ruled by Venus. They were worshiping Venus. When the age of Aries came along, um, the whole blowing of the ram's horn and everything else, that all got tied up in the worship of Saturn, which is why in strict Jewish observance, the black cube is on their forehead, on their arm is that black band that's wrapped around the middle finger. The middle finger is the Saturnian finger, and then it was going to roll into the age of Pisces, which should have been um, Jupiter. But, <laughs> and I don't even really want to say this, but I'll say it anyhow, um, the asset to like, What's an example? The Lord's Prayer. How many people are familiar with the Lord's Prayer? The Christian, the Christian mystics proved beyond doubt, as did the guy uh, who wrote the Devil's Pulpit, that the language in there, when they're saying the word Father and other things, was actually coded to Saturn. So even in the age of Jupiter, there were ninjas in the soup that were messing with everything, um, and that's what's going on now. 
is the open worship of Saturn is going to come big time. You'll you'll see it all the time. Anything with horns, anything with time, anything with the greatest or the the ruler of everything. That idea comes from Saturn being on the outermost orbit, the slowest path. That's the king of time, plus the circles and the binding. It all always attributed to Saturn, um, and that's what's going on now. And if you watch, you'll see the colors, the cube. Uh, anything horned like the pandemic that's from the goat pan who's got horns it's saturnian um it goes on and on and on but once you know these things you can begin to see through like this clever little ditty that jason just read absolutely even the up people into who today. are free <laughs> yep even up into today there's ninjas in the soup there uh, is <laughs> Yeah, man, that's that's a lot of our problem. They they do everything to obfuscate and confuse with all of these ideas and stuff, too. And you can kind of see, I mean, we're looking at the same thing again. When this great conjunction comes between Saturn and Jupiter, I mean, this is an exchanging of energies when it comes down to it. Wait, uh, we should make, recycling. make a bet. I'm sorry, William, but we should make no, a bet. Ahead. We should make a bet. Um <laughs> And I'm not a betting man, but you know damn well there's got to be some big thing that happens to stamp that tone, that keynote, right as we end out and the new programming for the sun or whatever they think, Saturn, comes. There's got to be an event, doesn't there? You notice all the vaccines are starting to ship and things like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, we're coming to, first of all, it's it's the low point of the sun with the winter solstice on the 21st. And then you put this great conjunction for the first time in 800 years, we've had one uh, like this. And then, um, you know, you, you combine that with the fact that it actually falls on the winter solstice. I mean, this this is the kind of thing that occultists drool over. OK, so uh, you you better bet your bottom dollar that. Uh, you know, the people in positions of power that are trying to leverage these energies uh, to achieve the goals they want are, are going to pull some kind of big nonsense here. And it may not be directly on uh, the solstice itself, but uh, I mean, the timing of it, uh, I would assume, I would say watch uh, within, I'd say, probably 33 days of the solstice, just as a guess, uh, we would probably see something. You, you would imagine um, there's there's so much more as um, burning through the tail of this document. Did you find that's that's a tri that's attributable to Freemasonry? I'm guessing, Jason. Yeah, um, let's end with this last little part. I just got to as I flipped down. Um, I'm not quite sure what they're on about here, and considering this is 1880, but check this out. Dedicated to the Masonic Brethren universally. Wisdom was never more exemplified than when it adopted the pyramid, pyramidic and triangular form of the sublime architecture of the heavens, machined on the firm basis of eternal stability. The United Brethren universally will adopt, I hope, the original form of the Masonic aprons and establish a jubilee to commemorate the restoration of that event by casting into the flames the present aprons of the unmeaning form of St. Crispin. Oh, boy. That seems uh, super encoded. <laughs> <laughs> almost seems biblical. we got a jubilee going on. They're going to burn some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's the burning jubilee. <laughs> They're going to burn the aprons. 
No, there, there's a lot encoded into that statement right there. Where'd you? What page is that on, Jason? I need to look through that, that again. Yes, it's on two different pages. It starts on. Uh, this document is not very well. Well, in my PDF, it's 41, and the document it doesn't have a page number. Doesn't have a page number. Oh, 50, 30, so 36 on the actual printed original, but it's 41 in okay. when I opened in. Uh, in uh, Acrobat. Oh, those wacky Acrobats messing things up. Page 36. Okay, well, there, there's a lot of ideas just encoded in there, and it basically talks about who these people really are. Um, you know, a Jubilee, the burning of the aprons, uh, the uh, going back to the original apron. Let me see if I can find all that. Oh, here it is, 36. Okay. Um, hmm. Machined on a firm basis, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and there's the little pictures with the master's apron yep. on there. Look at that. It's a trapezoid. Go figure. Somehow I knew that before I even looked at it, that that's what they were going to be talking about. <laughs> um, anyway, and this relates to a... Uh, a uh, A thing. In an order called the Order of the Trapezoid, which relates back to the, uh, um, what, what was that uh, organization founded? The Temple of Set. Uh, that uh, that uh, what's his name? Michael Aquino was uh, a big wig in. Uh, this relates back to that mm. whole idea, and this this points to uh, different uh, secret society traditions. Um, so that's what they're talking about here: is is getting rid of. Uh, the Masonic apron they have now, burning it because they are the philosophers of fire. That's important too. Burning it and going back to the restoration of the old apron, the the, the trapezoid. There, uh, there's there's so many things. I, I'm going to have to break down this this whole thing and and do <laughs> Boy, a little the, more the, here. The language really gets sneaky as you get down in here. Listen to this: the Duke of Cyprus, Rothschild, and five millions of the Abrahamites. <laughs> <laughs> Could you say that any more sneakily? And the Grand Master of Egypt. It goes on and on, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is a loaded document, guys. I think we're going to have to do another full show just on this document alone. Yeah, we could easily. It could we be could a thing. Yeah. Not only that, we could go into the moving. I, I think it's critically important to show the well-documented movement of the Heliopolis obelisk from 200 yards roughly away from where they needed it. They went through hell to just move it that far. And so, of course, they're going to say the crazy dude who's marrying his horse, having sex with his horse, <laughs> and cutting off people's heads with a lawnmower is the guy who moved it. Uh, what was it, almost 300 tons or something? Come on. Yeah, something like that. Uh, well, you know that they're not talking about a literal horse there, though, Gro. That Once again, this goes back to the whole idea of the equestrian class. Uh, so that's what that's more talking about. Uh, I would say that that's symbolic. I, I, I agree with you. I think there is an allegory there, but the actual histories that they want people <laughs> to accept is that's the, dudes, the exoteric history. Yeah, okay, they don't was, want you to read between the lines. Isn't that why they finally supposedly killed Caligula? Wasn't Caligula one of the guys that was killed because he promoted his horse above all other people, and so they <laughs> whacked him? But I agree with you. It is because of the equestrian class. Got to be. And no doubt in my mind, whenever I see something like that, like that's ridiculous on the face of it to, to think, okay, you got this guy. He's, he's that nuts that he would do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before well, we run out of time, all the way down at the bottom, chapter seven, uh, there is no page number. It's after page 66. Chapter seven, listen to this. From a historic standpoint, Freemasonry seems the growth of the world's elite in physical, intellectual, and moral science and progress, to which all times, tribes, nations, and races have furnished their quota, as may be realized by the following catalog of Masonic alma mater. Okay, here's what they're going to call the antediluvian alumni of Freemasonry. Abel, the first murderer. Seth, Jay Ball, Tubal Cain, they're going to list here. Um, <laughs> Enoch, Noah, Japheth, Nimrod, Asher, Canaan, Sidon, Peleg, Mizraim, Abraham, of course. Oh, here we go. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Ishmael and Job. Joseph, of course, Joseph was uh, a Masonic (laughs) alma mater brethren. Can you, I've never seen this written anymore, and they're openly claiming Tubal Cain here. There it is. And and they listen to this. Tubal Cain from Genesis 422. 3454 BC, they know when Tubal lived. <laughs> Instructor of every artificer in brass and iron has ever been regarded as a pr- primitive patron of Freemasonry. You won't find this written in anything modern. No, man, you won't. Um, Abel, I'm surprised they're they're claiming Abel here rather than Cain. So, <laughs> that, I think that's interesting. Oh, wait a minute. There, okay, wait a minute. Abel has an asterisk. Here's the footnote. We do not claim that the secret or Masonic societies existed in the days of Abel, but that the sect of the Masonic Brotherhood perpetuated his name by calling themselves Abelites. Also, the Assyrian god Belus, Bel, or Baal, the Cretan Abelios, the Celtic Bel, or Abilio Greek, and the Roman Apollo, or Apollo were but modified names of the Hebrew Hebel, from which our Abel was derived. You know what they just told you? That Abel was the son. That's what there they just told. There it is. I guess that's why they're the sons of May, huh? The May sons. Yeah, I mean that that brings a whole new uh, you know uh, thought process to looking at the Cain and Abel story then. If Abel's the son and Cain murdered the son, what does that make Cain? Well, it's funny here because Tubal Cain is a direct descendant of Cain, if I'm not mistaken. And I do need to go check to make sure I'm not messing that up. But why would you claim the murdered dude and then claim the descendant of the murderer of the murdered dude (laughs) and then put an asterisk? I mean, it's an asterisk that basically says, by the way, the word Abel comes from Apollo. (laughs) That tells me that there was a split in the organization. That's that's what that tells me. Abel represents the uh, the water idea. Cain represents the fire idea, and therefore Tubal Cain also represents the fire idea. So if you're looking at these, Seth, I would think would represent the earth idea. Uh, Jabal, I'm not sure. I would have to do uh, more looking at some of this. Uh, Noah, once again, that represents the water idea. Enoch would be, um, you know, well, I would say he'd probably represent the ether idea more than anything. Uh, if you go through and look at all of these, uh, you could you could you know seven ways to Sunday go back and and relate these different ideas and and uh, archetypes to these names here. Look look at chapter eight, guys. 
Moses and the Israelites. Moses has an exoteric surface narrative and esoteric hidden meaning. So has an exo and esoteric significance in Freemasons who mention and invoke him in their rites and high degrees. They accept Usher's chronology, 1451 BC, as the date of his death. Egyptologists differ wild, wildly on this point. It goes on to say, and then it says, the originator of the obelisk, now on its way to New York, was the pharaoh before whom Moses pleaded. Are you getting all this? Hmm. Wow, there's a lot in here. We, we definitely have to go back on this document. We, this we reminds do. me of, of some things that uh, you know I, I've looked at in some other different uh, Masonic books. I'm, in fact, I'm going to be posting on my YouTube channel probably Friday. Um, I'm looking at a breakdown of a book called Mystic Masonry, and uh, the one chapter in it speaks of the quote-unquote secret doctrine, and I'm going to be doing a breakdown on that on my channel. Uh, later this week so you know uh, a lot of these different ideas tie together with some of that stuff too so uh, yeah we're definitely I got what, some reading to do with this stuff. what what was the name of the dude do you remember there's a guy who early on was trying to crack the supposed hieroglyphics I think his name is budge it might not be budge if it's not it's something close to that then they make fun of him in the Stargate movie where everyone who was really into trying to know the truth said Budge had the closest translations, but Egyptologists say Budge was a crank um, and that he didn't know what he was talking about. In the movie Stargate, they make the specific point to tell the dude, oh, you can't read the Stargate because you've been reading Budge. If you just listen to Dr. Zahi Hawass, which is what they're implying, the mainstream, you could crack the Stargate. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting to take Budge's hieroglyphics, because anyone can buy the book by Budge that says what he claims the hieroglyphics mean, and take a new look at these obelisks. I'll bet you there would be a stark difference in what they actually say. Well, that could be, and that more that may be more obfuscation, because like Egyptologists still haven't really got the foggiest clue as to what any of these ancient Egyptian structures were, first of all, used for how they were made or what's actually encoded in them. What the, you know, all these different ideas. They still think pyramids are tombs. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're, they're initiation halls. That's what they were built for. They're, they're in initiation halls. Um, so look, look at this down down further. They're arguing about when Moses actually lived and they list all the dates from 1729 B.C. all the way up to 1283 A.D., a dude named Poole. But they all agree that the Egypt chronology till Pharaoh Passamathicius was 666 B.C. about whose reign chronologists agree. So they all agree <laughs> on this dude. Who's six six six? So <laughs> Moses lived that, under huh? Thoth. It's basically Thosmes. Yeah, <laughs> Thosmes. Uh, it goes on and on. There's so much here, guys. We could we could tear this apart six ways to Sunday. If you go down past the uh, the index at the end, there is J W Booten's catalog of new and recent publications. Look at all of the titles and subject matter of these books. I gotta wonder if any of these still exist. They were talking about stuff in print that would never happen today, like not even close. 
Damn, this even goes into that. Arab masonry? Go ahead, Jason. For instance, the Rosencrucians, their rites and mysteries with chapters on the ancient fire and serpent worshippers, and explanations of the mystic symbols represented in the monuments and talismans of the primeval philosophers by Hargrave Jennings. Next, we have the Royal Masonic Cyclopedia. Uh, I think I have that one, actually, Jason. Which one? one you said. I, I think I have that one. Good. I'm glad they exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of these do exist. They're hard to find, but, like, uh, yeah. I... Well, this next one has got to be interesting. The Royal Masonic Cyclopedia of History, Rights, Symbolism, and Biography by Kenneth R.H. McKenzie, the most complete and valuable work of reference that has ever been presented to the craft. Well, oh, boy. Yeah. We'll have to look that one up. Did you, did you did you see this part where they're showing that the Pharaoh Ramses, the Mexican hero or deity, and the Hindu androgyny deity are all duplicate with the snake coming out of their forehead? They're showing that nature works in one way, and everyone had a version of it. Yeah, well, that goes hand in hand with what they always say, that these things are the same stories being retold in different cultures. Are you below the index, Jason? Those books are, yeah, they're at the end of the document. Oh, I see the catalog. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking. I'm going to have to go through this and see what exists Isis and if there's PDFs of this stuff. Because, I, I mean, there's like 600 shows in all these books here. I have that one, Isis Unveiled. That's Blavatsky. Yeah, that's a Blavatsky one. That one's pretty common. Yeah, yeah. Blavatsky one is. That's why I skipped it. That's run of the mill. Uh, let's see. The Anacalypsis. Ancient Art and Mythology. That one might be interesting. Uh, an Inquiry by Richard Payne Knight, author of Worship of Priapus. <laughs> the Philosophy of Existence. That one's got to hit it out of the ballpark. Ooh, The Eleusinian and Bacchic Mysteries. I want this one. You got this one kicking around, Wayne? I'll check. I don't know. I might. Um... Because part of that represents before we all went south hard. The Lost Beauties of the English Language. Cyclopedia of Costume. Hmm. That's got to be good. The Etcher. (laughs) The Story of the Stick. The Stick. Don Quixote's Man of La Mancha is listed in here. The history of Don Quixote. For people who don't know, it's claimed that to save language in its complexity, uh, this was a later knockoff that was done in earlier books like Dante's Inferno and the Canterbury Tales. That's why Don Quixote exists, and it's listed here. Hmm. Monumental Christianity, that's got to be a fine. You got that one, Wayne? No, I don't think so. I'm going to have to look some of these up. I'll have to look through this, uh, you know. We're all book shopping on there. Bookshop, yeah. Yeah, yeah nothing like it. <laughs> this, uh, this publisher, this bookmaker no longer exists. The, the address is at, at the beginning of this document, and I looked them up there, and they were in New York, but it's just apartments now. A lot of this stuff might be, uh, you know, on archive. Might be able to find it on archive. The first edition of Shakespeare. Interesting things. All right. I guess we should wind her up here. What do we want to talk about to to stop off here? Rose, what are you talking about in the poppycock tomorrow? 
Oh, the uh, poppycock jar runneth over with a lot of perpy kirk. Perpy kirk. <laughs> it sounds like Cartman. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, that's my authority. I posted it in the chat. I'll do it again. Somebody's asking if we could address the fact that they're calling this Saturn-Jupiter thing the Christmas star. Yes, I've noticed that, too. Um, I, I, there's definitely a uh, an important um, idea. idea attributed to this conjunction, and that's why they're making that reference, because they're talking about something that actually changed the world. I mean, when you look at uh, the... Uh, rise of Christianity and you know the Christmas star you can see how this is um, this idea is presented as a world changing or world shaking idea changing uh, the guard. It, right so I mean it, that's definitely something uh, why they are referring to it as the Christmas star and um, you know this is the first time we've had this conjunction in 800 years so I would suggest that uh, maybe looking back um, eight, eight, you know, to 800 years ago to see what kind of changes took place then, uh, we might be able to see some, some kind of an idea as to just how much of a, of a change we might have. But this is also a, a rare thing in that it's actually occurring on the winter solstice. So, I mean, that gives it that much more of a uh, a type of archetypal energy behind it so that's that's why it's got such importance tied to it and they're comparing it to the christmas star because that's you know attributing to the same time of year the winter solstice uh so when you're looking back at you know the christmas story we celebrate christmas um and around the same time as the winter solstice that's why they're they're kind of uh, just playing off of that uh to make sure to drive the point home that this is an important event People could get, uh, we just had him on recent, Dylan Sicoccio, um, what is it, Deaf Phoenicians, his books on Amazon. He has a take on exactly the same thing. But from my point of view, what you're going to see is it's going to be kind of like a Christmas star this time, except Jupiter, who was supposed to be raining all this time when we had Saturn ninjas in our soup, they're going to officially swap them. So it kind of implies that a few years from now, uh, the idea of Jesus associated with Christmas will start to have to become something else. Um, and it'll probably have to do with goats, if I had to guess. Are you suggesting that the Saturn clause is coming to town? Well, he's been here for quite a while. I'm just wondering if Has he'll claim his title you. now. <laughs> All right, let's wrap her up. So, Wayne, oh, yeah. what, do you, what do you want to mention? Um, just, uh, I'll be posting uh, probably Friday night, uh, that, that video I was just talking about uh, going over the book Mystic Masonry and the portion of it where it refers to the quote-unquote secret doctrine and I'll be doing a breakdown of that if people want to check that out um, my new book is out it's been out since mid-October now uh, it's called Cybernetic Messiah Building the Antichrist System if people want to check that out that's available now too um, in pretty much all the book retailers at this point um, other than that um, it, it's doing fine. I'm holding my own. I'm uh, pretty high up on the Amazon rankings for as far as uh, books on philosophy and Christian eschatology. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm doing well as far as that goes. So uh, I'm I'm pleased with it overall. Um, but other than that, um, I'll be back here again next Wednesday night. Uh, 
I think uh, this is my Sunday off with Baldini on Sola Scriptura, so I won't be on there this weekend. Oh, I just uh, did a show with John Brisson on Monday uh, over on his channel. We've read the documents on YouTube if people want to check that out. That was a good show, too. I always enjoyed talking to John. He's a good guy. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple other things coming up. Uh, not within the next week or so, though, but... Um, yeah, I got some stuff going on, but that's about it. People want to check that out. All right, Crow. So we are releasing in an hour Mr. Simon, Simon Steeps. Steeps from uh, from Canada, eh? It was pretty good, actually. Yeah, right. He's. It's going to be about permaculture. Um, there's actually going to be a thread here. And by the way, we're going to do permaculture and Simon Steeps. Last time around, we were going to just do a show on weeds, and it became very popular. Um, which is why we asked him back. Uh, that's going to be followed by Howdy. Howdy is coming back again. Uh, and we do, we go all around the world. We talk about the stone circles, all kinds of stuff. And then I'm very excited after that, we have David Avocado Wolf. Um, we just recorded with him this morning. But tonight, Simon Steeps and Permaculture. Um, a lot of important ideas. We've got to start getting a handle on our food um, because you can't hold on to your higher mind if you don't have the nutrition to do it. So, uh, should we mention the Christmas special that we're going to do? Oh yes, we're going to make a, a little teaser of some kind that I want to put out. We're we're giving everyone a Christmas present this year. Uh, we're doing the twelve hoaxes of Christmas. Crow, myself. Ooh, and, that sounds fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, with with David Weiss because that's actually what he originally started out doing years back when I first met him. So that will be a Christmas bonus. Not exactly sure when we'll release it, but more toward the. Uh, the holiday and all that, but we'll be putting out a teaser trailer for that soon so everybody knows that they're getting a bonus episode this month on top of the two we do every week. Should I uh, should I title that one Beware of Satan's Claws or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> the 12 Ho-Ho Hoaxes of Christmas. All right. Everyone good? Should we sign off? Well, we're eat. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next week. Cheers and thanks.
Oh, 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 oh,